You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of the 602 Club coming to you from only the finest locations as we sip on something very special, very old. Uh, I'd have to say, John Champion, I I don't think that this is a disappointing brandy at all. Ah, ah, ah. (laughs) Oh, excuse me. I mean, odd job. I'm going to do the whole show like, ah, ah. Is that all right? Is that okay? We just had to figure out what you're talking about. (laughs) You can make it up. You can run subtitles later. Uh, Yeah, I, 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 I will just dub you. Like they did Goldfinger. Sure, and what you would dub me for that part is uh, that I'd be very disappointed in the uh, Bonvoir, in the uh, in the brandy. Yes, yeah. yes, that's that has to be one of my favorite <laughs> points of this film because we're we're just jumping right in. But I, I think that's the first time that Bond does that, where he like knows something so succinctly about a subject yep. that M is just put off by it. <laughs> right, so right. Fantastic. Well, as everybody can tell, uh, we are here to talk about Goldfinger, the possibly the I Ching of Bond films. That's what we're going to discuss tonight to see if it really lives up to its own hype, uh, the phenomenon that was created uh, when this film came out. And uh, before we dive into that, of course, you can find the 602 Club all over the place with Trek FM. We're a feature provider there on iTunes. So proud to be that. Uh, so you can check us out at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And of course, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, you'll find us on the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group. Even John's in that. So come and have a discussion with us there about the episodes that we do all throughout the network. Just type Babel into that search field on Facebook, and we'll let you right into the group. And of course, we've got the old-school email. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can choose any of the shows. Just choose the 602 Club, and that'll come straight to us. And, uh, of course, uh, we've got Twitter, at Trek.fm. So just uh, so many ways to get in contact with us. Of course, we're all over the place with uh, Google Play, Podcasts now, and uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, all that kind of stuff. So just search for us everywhere. You'll find it, just Trek.fm. So, John, I, I want... To dive right in, because this is a monumental film in a lot of ways, not just for Bond. You know, 1964, Bond mania has really hit its stride. We have the last novel published by its creator, Ian Fleming. He'll die soon afterwards, unfortunately. And the producers here are trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? 
They've got the court case going with Kevin McClory over the whole thing surrounding Thunderball. That's still in the high courts. There's no way they're going to be able to do that. So they turn to Goldfinger as the third Bond film, which I, I find so interesting how they just haphazardly would, it's almost like they just pulled books off the shelf. Oh, let's do this one. <laughs> right, right, right. Because you, you had to do something where, well, you had to raise the stakes from the last movies, but you also had to do a production that you could realistically do. You know, we're still talking about early 60s. We're still talking about an era before the blockbuster. So you're not used to, movies with just you know tens of millions and now hundreds of millions of dollars budgets so you've got to do something kind of reasonable and this sounded like as good a choice as any i i'm going to sort of go ahead and and state my thesis which is really my wrap-up before we even get going because oh i love it i i feel like this is going to sort of color everything that i say in our discussion today I was really thinking about it. I was thinking about our conversations from Dr. No and from Russia with Love and how I kept trying to put those in a certain context, the context about um, where we were in the 60s, where we were in sort of the pop culture wars. I, I had said something about Dr. No coming at a time of the last gasp of adult culture. And, mm, yeah. and Goldfinger exists in a really interesting place. Um, this is a movie where it's sort of like third time's the charm. The first movie, Dr. No, all we had to do was just get the movie done and be, we don't even necessarily have to be true to a book. We just have to be true to the script <laughs> that is there to right. be shot, right? <laughs> and, and just get the thing done and make it cool and make it fun. And you got some good music in there. And then you hope that people respond to it. Then it was a hit. All right, then the second movie, you're sort of narrowing down those hallmarks that make Bond Bond. You're trying to plant these little items that make Bond cool, right? And then that movie's a hit. But now by the third one, you've got this really difficult task of like every sequel has, you've got to be the same but different. <laughs> and you've got to build on the success of that character that has been so cemented now by two movies. So the little things that started to show up in the first two movies, the quips, the cool clothes, the hint at gadgets, the women, all of this stuff is exponentially blown up onto a much, much bigger scale in this movie. And I think Definitely. it exists at a really specific time. This is, you know, 1963. This is before the Beatles' invasion of the U.S., but the Beatles are a thing, and they're a big thing in Europe at this point, but they're kind of this, like, annoying band for teenagers, right? <laughs> and there's this line that Bond has. He says, that would be as bad as listening to the Beatles with earmuffs, describing drinking Dom Perignon above the temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Dom 53, as it were. Um, and well, to me, is there any other? I, I know, right, right, right. <laughs> so, But there's something so specific about that moment that in a James Bond film, you're acknowledging something that is in the greater pop culture at large because now the Bond movies are saying we're part of the pop culture at large too. This is huge. I think this is massive because it's no longer just we're going to make a cool movie. We're acknowledging that we're a massive movie. We're acknowledging that we take up the same space 
as this other incredibly well-known thing. And now after Goldfinger comes out, you know, right on top of Goldfinger, I think that's really when the Bond marketing bonanza takes off. It's the very next year that Man From U.N.C.L.E. comes on TV. All the parody films of Bond start popping up like crazy. This is really Bond, uh, the, the moment for Bond, that it stops being a movie series and starts being a pop culture phenomenon. And you cannot put that genie back in the bottle. It's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a wonderful documentary on the uh, Blu-ray or the digital release, mm -hmm. whichever one you get. And I have both uh, because I'm a, a glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, but And I like to be able to have my bond wherever I go. Uh, and so the idea of it becoming a phenomenon, and, and they talked about this idea of the merchandising really hitting. I mean, you could buy James Bond shoes. Mm -hmm. They, of course, came out with the DB5 Aston Martin car that you could get, uh, you know, puzzles and games. And I mean, the list was endless, the, the things that they put the name Bond on or 007. And so it really did, it, it, it started young with kids collecting you know the db5 all the way up to them playing you know the james bond spy board game which mm -hmm. it's got to be riveting stuff uh <laughs> and you know putting together their uh you know 150 piece puzzle and you know all of these things like bond found its way into every part of our life which is so interesting and i think you you mentioned something about the 63 64 this is before the world shifts yeah you know the world is it doesn't realize it that it's it's shifting but this is before that huge shift happens before we get that kind of uh, i i would say that kind of downward slide into the 70s malaise that we get into this is before that everything is still high class you know um yeah i, I mean th this is the, this sort of fits in that time where uh, movies are made for adults. Mm -hmm. TV shows yeah. are made for adults. Now, they're made for uh, a wide audience, so it's not offensive to a wide audience. But movie makers are making movies based on the idea that adults are buying the tickets. That That is not what we have today where most movies that come out are aimed at a 13-year-old audience because they're the ones who have some, you know, discretionary income <laughs> because they don't yeah. pay rent, right? <laughs> then the movies were just made for the 13-year-old in you. Right, right. Yeah, very <laughs> much so, very much so, yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, I, we're kind of playing fast and loose with the dates here. I mean, Goldfinger came out in 1964, but it, they started shooting it, I, I believe, in 1963. And I think it had its U.S. debut in January of 1965. So we're actually covering kind of a wide area here in, in terms of the dates. But to me, 1964 is so critical because that is the year of the Beatles, uh, uh, the U.S. invasion, the British invasion of the U.S. This is when things start to turn. And that's when, you know, the Rat Pack starts going out. They hang on for a few more years, but it's the Beatles, it's the Stones, it's the Who, it's the Dave Clark Five, it's Herman Hermits, it's all of that stuff coming in and it's pushing all this other stuff out. But we've got this character in Bond who clearly is an adult living in an adult world who appeals to sort of maybe, as you're saying here, the 13-year-old in all of us, right? Um, there's a bit of fantasy fulfillment going on with Bond yes. for sure, you know. But um, 
but it's not a movie made for kids. It's just a movie that happens to have a, a wide appeal because it's the right movie at the right time. And, you know, I, I think I wanted to make sure we had this conversation right up front before we got into the details, because to me, I can only look at this movie this way now is to think about it in terms of that pop culture context where this is the one. This is the one that cements everything that we know about Bond. The first two were kind of prototypes, and now we've perfected the prototype. What's so interesting is you feel like they're realizing that, mm -hmm. too. They know that they want this to be the biggest Bond yet. Yep. So they choose Goldfinger, and they give it a considerable budget for the time, which is $3 million, which in today's dollars, uh, 2016, is about $23 million. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a indie movie yeah, these right, days. Right. Uh, but then, big deal. And so, basically, think about this. It has the equivalent budget of Dr. No and From Russia With Love combined. That's how big they want this movie to be. And then I think... The most interesting thing is, is that when you look at this film and you're watching it, they are able to capitalize on a few things. It's almost as if they can see what's going to happen with the Beatles. Yeah. Where America is going to start to fall in love again with things from England. You know, it's been a long time since we liked things from England. <laughs> right. Uh, I think an Anglophilism really became popular 64 onwards after the Beatles. Like we started to fall back in love as Americans with things from England. Mm -hmm. And we started to get back in touch with that kind of thing. And of course, think about this too. Um, a few years down the road, Tolkien would be another big import. C.S. Lewis is a big import. So there's a lot of influences coming from the British Isles back over to the States, making that those islands much more appealing to us and anything coming from them. So uh, putting that all into context, I think... You, you realize just how much a part of the the world Bond became. Yeah. Because he's being imported at a time that, to the States, at the same time that we're getting a lot of things from England. And really, um, again, I think of falling back in love with that culture. And almost, I think, Bond represents that upperclassman and that um, properness at the same time with a wink and a nod and having a little bit of fun with the rules right. that we as Americans hold a little bit more dear than they did at that point. So I just all of that put together makes for a really interesting milieu for Bond to come into with Goldfinger. And the fact that the majority of the film takes place in the United States, I think also had a huge impact on it being such a hit here because it becomes the highest grossing film of all time, the fastest. It's the fastest grossing film ever. Right, right, yeah. Which is an incredible thing, because I think, if I remember the number correctly, they're in about 74 theaters in the States. <laughs> which would just be a disaster today. You know, 74 theaters is nothing. That is a little indie yeah. film, if you're <laughs> yes. lucky, you know. <laughs> Um, you think about it, movies that launch today that are hits that need to be in, you know, between 2,000 and 3,000 theaters to really be a hit. Um, Some up to 4,000 these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So this is remarkable. I mean, th this is a movie that just absolutely sold out constantly 
from the time they put it out in theaters. Um, and it, it sold a tremendous number of tickets in such a short time. But I, I think, yeah, that what we're saying here, what, what you and I keep coming back to is this idea that this is a level of awareness on the part of the producers that I don't think had been seen before really in in much else that had been cinema phenomena. Um, there were big movies before. Before we started recording, I mentioned Gone with the Wind because it was a huge top seller of a movie. And I think yeah. to this day, it might hold the record with the most number of tickets sold. So that that's a, a huge landmark for that. And then, of course, you had uh, like the Charlie Chaplin phenomenon where here's somebody whose image was marketed around the world and, and as an image was known so well around the world. But these are very few and far between. You know, you're talking about two generations back before this movie came out, mm -hmm. if you were to talk about yeah. Chaplin. So here we are with, with a new kind of almost manufactured phenomenon. And I said it in a way on one of our last Bond discussions where I didn't want it to sound cynical. I didn't want it to sound like, well, th this is manufactured because the audience doesn't know any better. And it's manufactured because the producers are simply trying to take money out of your pockets. I say that it's manufactured I in the sense that they really know what they're going for. They know what will hit and they know what will make this character indelible. And they know what will make these movies special. You know, we get ahead of ourselves a little bit when we talk about after Bond has been around for 20 years and you've got all these movies that keep trying to come out to be the next Bond and then you give it a couple of years and Bond comes back around and shows them how to do it right. <laughs> you know, that happens over and over again. Well, and what's so interesting is, you know, at this point we've had the two Bond films, this will be the third, and we hadn't really had that yet where somebody was trying to truly capitalize on this whole idea. It just, it just hadn't happened up to this point. It will happen after this. Like you said, uh, Man from U.N.C.L.E. is going to be on television. Mm -hmm. uh, all the spy stuff really hits its craze right after this movie you know, comes out. And then, of course, you get the, the spoofs of... Uh, Oh, Casino Royale yeah. and and uh, our man Flint and all of that yeah. kind of stuff after this yeah. too. So it, it, and and that happens because Goldfinger does legitimately become a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what's so interesting as we talked about this, and I think is so interesting about this film, is is one of the ways. And let's talk about the marketing, John, because I think it's very interesting. They want this film to be big and they want to say to the audience we know that you enjoyed the last two bond films but if you enjoyed that this is going to be the thing that you've been waiting your entire life for this is everything you never knew you always wanted yeah and so they start marketing the film very early while they're shooting the film uh they they do interviews with connery he becomes somebody who is quite a bit more popular than he was during the first two films. People start kind of falling around. The press is falling around. They're having pictures taken all the time. Honestly, they market him as the man that every woman wants and that every man wants to be. And then they do the same thing with Honor Blackman 
as the leading lady. They they market her the same way, but the woman that everybody wants to be and the woman that every man wants to be with. Mm-hmm. And they set this up as this incredible expectation in a way that I don't think any film had been marketed to this point. You know, they let reporters on the set uh, in a way that happens now, like what just happened with Justice League. A bunch of reporters went to the set, saw some scenes. They saw the famous scene being filmed of the woman in gold paint. Yeah. You know, they gave that away, just <laughs> really trying to continue to build the mystique of Bond so that by the time Goldfinger comes out and people see it, I, I will say, I think Goldfinger becomes the gold standard for Bond movies. It's the one that everybody judges the rest of the Bond films by. It, but is it as good as Goldfinger? That becomes the question, you know, for a lot of Bond fans. Yeah, which is a little unfair because Goldfinger gets so much right. And like you're saying, this is the moment where the Bond producers are telling the audience, okay, we know what you like. We're going to keep doing that and we're going to keep trying to do it better. And that kind of attitude fails very often because the audience sort of sees right through it. But you have the right combination here. You have the right combination of director and actors and the right combination of script and producers. So the the skill level and talent level is there to pull it off. Um, so they could actually get away with that. Now, Goldfinger may have some certain problems, or even if we don't call them problems, I would say that there are things about this movie that are very dated that maybe you can look at 50 years later and say, well, that's charming, but that wouldn't happen now. (laughs) But we as an audience also fall into that cynical trap of saying, okay, well, I want the same but better. But if it's too much the same, or if it's a little too different in the interest of being better, then I will absolutely give up on it. And I will be relentless in my criticism of the, of whatever comes later, you know? Which, yes, no, exactly. And I think it's created the the polarized world of it's the best thing ever or it sucks. Yeah, right. Like those, we're the polar opposite. That, that's all that there is today, which, you know, I, I think when you think of creatives, it's got to be hard. I, I, I think of the DC films and, and trying to create a, a new version of characters that we love and that whole thing about it, it's too different. You know, yeah. people won't give yeah. it a chance or they don't like it. They just automatically kind of shove it to the side. And yeah, so with Bond, I feel like coming into this one with the marketing, they they make another key change here. Mm-hmm. And a man that I think is probably responsible for what we get, and that's Guy Hamilton yeah. as the director. Yep. And I think it's his choices which really catapult Bond into the stratosphere of pop culture. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that, like I said, the combination has to be right. The combination of script and director and producers and, and talent on screen and designers. You know, let's not forget how good Ken Adam uh, has been at everything that he touched related to Bond. Yes. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, he had the golden touch. Yeah, yeah. But but Guy Hamilton really is the right choice for this movie um, because I think we might have outgrown, by design, what came before in Dr. No One from Russia with Love. So Guy Hamilton is sort of able to add that extra layer of polish 
on top of what we see here. So it's very slick um, and in a way that the previous two movies were not. For better or for worse, you know, everything I say here can be taken as to say, well, it's slick, but is it too slick? There's a lot of the tropes that we recognize as Bond, but are there too many tropes that we recognize as Bond? Be that as it may, you can pick apart each one of those as much as you want, but we will keep coming back to this idea of Goldfinger being the gold standard, the ultimate version of Bond by which others are judged. And I think the reason that this one can get away with it is because, as we were saying before, this is the film that makes the trope. This is the film that creates the trope, which we then refer to as, oh, that's just so Bond. Uh, you know, that's the Bond formula. This is the film that lays out what the Bond formula is, which is basic structure. You've got the henchman, a with a particular characteristic. You've got a Bond girl who is killed by the villain. Big emphasis on gadgets, more mm -hmm. tongue-in-cheek, uh, and trying to balance out that action and the comedy. And, of course, they added the pre-credit sequence that didn't really have anything to do with the next mission. It was just kind of like a side mission. It was like, hey, welcome back to Bond. He's blowing something up. And, and by the way, Connery is wearing a fabulous satin wetsuit. Uh, which it's awesome, <laughs> you know, we should all have one of those really just to have at our disposal whenever we need that it. may be Q branches. Greatest achievement is a satin <laughs> wetsuit that actually keeps you dry. Right, right. Um, and he's got the pigeon on his, uh, dive mask, <laughs> you know, but, but here's the thing, you know, this is what's so funny to me is like that scene opens with this huge tongue in cheek sense of humor that you got, he's got the pigeon and he's wearing this wetsuit that is very clearly not an actual wetsuit, but fine, whatever he's got to take it off and reveal the tuxedo underneath. And these are things that we may not have bought in Dr. No or in From Russia with Love, but we buy it in this movie because this movie has a different attitude about the character and about the audience's expectations. And we go back to this idea then of saying, okay, if this is the movie by which all other Bond movies are judged, it's kind of hard then to make the argument to say, well, this other Bond movie, it's got too much tongue in cheek, or it's got too many quips, or it's got too many gadgets, because that's the thing that we're saying we love about Goldfinger, <laughs> you know? And those are the things that kind of make Bond Bond now. Yeah. Well, I mean, the moment that he says, shocking. <laughs> absolutely shocking yeah you know that it is going to be a slightly different bond and and what's interesting about the uh, and guy hamilton i think really brings this to the character he brings a more mature sensibility in the sense that bond is much more comfortable in his skin now. yes by far he is much more comfortable in who he is so i mean we, there, we don't think of there being a lot of continuity in these bond films uh you know beyond the craig ones mm -hmm. that we've already talked about but there actually is a lot of continuity and it makes a lot of sense if you were watching them in sequence at least one two and three here the character truly has grown into the role of 007 and become much more comfortable with who he is and yet i'd say that there's still some really interesting things that they do with the story that i really like and while the villain is over the top with its plot Hamilton works very closely and, and, and wants 
bond to still be grounded. And he realized, and I think this is where his genius comes in, Bond's becoming kind of a Superman. Mm -hmm. So the villain needs to be more and more over the top to make Bond feel more grounded. But when I was watching the film critically here, I noticed that he still does a lot of the things that he did in the first two films. Uh, I didn't remember the detective work being as good as it is. It actually is. I mean, he's doing a lot of good spy work. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, he's doing that thing where he spends an entire day watching that base there in Switzerland. Right. And then he's come back at night so he can infiltrate. Right. Uh, and, of course, that's when he runs back into to Tilly Masterson. And I was really struck by the way in which, you know, I think people think of this film as the movie where Bond starts to be cavalier towards the female's deaths. And yet, if you watch his reaction to when he finds Jill mm -hmm. painted in gold it's remorseful and he's upset by what he's seeing he's he can't just play it off it's not a quip to him I mean he immediately calls Felix and is telling him to get the hell down here right now right right now a girl is dead and and then when Tilly Masterson dies him going over to check her and see if she's still alive is what allows him to get captured. Yeah. And so, I mean, there is a, a certain sense of there's a, there's still some humanity left to him. He's not a cold blooded womanizer here. He actually does care about these people. I think part of it is him here having to take those feelings and just push them down because there's still a mission and I thought that was really interesting because I didn't remember it being that way. But I'm, as I was watching critically, I was very encouraged by how Sean Connery chose to play those scenes that actually give you an insight into the character of who Bond is. That's an interesting moment when Tilly dies because you kind of have mm, this yeah. ceasefire that happens at that moment. He, he's battling it out with, uh, well, Ajav has just killed Tilly, but he's being fired at by the guys in that other car. And as soon as she dies, there, there's this moment where sort of the movie takes this gasp and there's a ceasefire as he runs over to check on her. He allows himself to get captured at that point. Um, I, I think the thing that would make Bond's attitude unsavory is if you got the sense that he knew this was coming for anybody, mm -hmm. right. if he sort of allowed this to happen for someone. And there are moments in the Bond franchise where you sort of get that impression, but these two yes. moments with Jill yes. and with Tilly are definitely not that way. And, and he plays it realistically. There are moments in this movie where unlike other Bond movies, he doesn't know what's going on. Yes, that's very true. He has an inkling of who's who, but uh, I, I think that's one of the things that makes the scene at the laser table so memorable for many reasons. <laughs> but one of the reasons is that Bond is bluffing. Yes. He is desperate <laughs> to not get cut in half, as we all should be. I mean, who, who wants to be castrated with a laser? You don't. Most people don't. They wake up in the morning. That's not how they picture their day going. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's how you picture your day going. <laughs> John and I will re reference some wonderful counselors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he's he's bluffing his way through that. And through much of this movie, he's just trying to put the pieces together. So uh, like you say, he's not a Superman. He, he's a guy doing the job and trying to outwit the other side. Sometimes it works. 
sometimes it doesn't because sometimes he gets caught. I think when you're watching this story, and and I I actually had to revise the outline Mm. because I had put on the outline something about Bond being, you know, captured most of the time and and it not really being a good detective story. And then I I rewatched the film and I had to stop myself because I was wrong because Bond does a lot of great detective work here, but he does get captured. Mm -hmm. And then that's the point where you're talking about where he really does have to kind of almost, he's, it's almost like he's playing survivor. You know, he has to outwit, outlast, outplay the other side. And I think that's what makes it so interesting to watch this film. And I think that's one of the strengths of the movie is watching Bond and you're, Every time you're not quite sure how he's going to get out of the situation he's in, mm-hmm. you know, especially when that last third of the film, because Felix thinks he's OK and uh, you know, he is captured. And the plan, if he can't lure, you know, <laughs> uh, Pussy Galore over to his side, it's it's not going to go well for anyone, uh, especially him. Yeah. And so I, I thought I just I think it's it's an interesting thing to watch for this movie and it's carefully crafted to be just enough over the top so that you have a good time, but grounded enough so you still buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm I'm not pulled out because the plot's so utterly ridiculous that it makes me want to laugh out loud. <laughs> right. Right. No, it absolutely. They they tread that line. Um, but like any good movie, they have to give you something to relate to. Um, and there is something relatable, at least for, for the audience trying to identify with Bond, at least not knowing more than he does, you know, um, he, he's got to play it straight. He's got to play it real. There are quips, but I think we accept where they come. So, yeah, I I don't really have much more to add to that other than to say that this could have gone very differently if they had decided to amp up that part of the character and not reel him back in a little bit. I mean, it could have ended up as uh, Diamonds Are Forever, but Mm -hmm. that's a whole other show. A whole other show. Uh, We'll get there. (laughs) Well, I I wanted to talk about the man with the Midas touch. Mm -hmm. Goldfinger is one of the, the highlights of villains in in Bond. Uh, you know, we think of him and Blofeld and maybe the man with the golden gun, you know, mm-hmm. the, as being some of the best. But Goldfinger is really the one who sets, I think, the standard, again, for uh, kind of an outlandish plot. But in and of itself, what I love about the character of Goldfinger is he's just a thief. <laughs> like, but he just has a really big plan that's actually quite genius. Even Bond says it. It's pretty ingenious because he will destroy the economy of America. He will be on the good side of the Chinese who seem to be working with him because that's mm-hmm. his army. And uh, he will increase his own wealth tenfold. It's it all because he's able to pull this off. And I just... It is crazy. I mean, my <laughs> wife was stationed at Fort Knox, so um, when we watched the film, she's like, yeah, there's a lot more security these days. Yeah, right, um, <laughs> right. So, yeah. uh, and of course, she's never even been inside. Nobody knows what it looks like, unless, I guess, unless you actually worked at the vault. And But it's crazy, but it's not super crazy. 
You know, it's not Moonraker crazy. No, he, he feels like he's in the real world. That That's the thing. You know, I, I love the idea that we go to that foundry where they're melting down gold and he's talking about how they move his car back and forth to smuggle gold from one country to another. It feels very tangible when you see stuff like that. The only fantastical thing that Goldfinger has is that model of Fort Knox, <laughs> you know? Yeah, in that house. In that house. It's incredible. It's this incredible super mod house in Kentucky, fronted by this weird, you know, antebellum look. But once you get inside, oh man, he's got these concrete corridors and push button everything. That is super cool. I'd love to know his designer, you know? Yeah, uh, name is Ken Adams. Oh, right, right, that designer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, but everything else about Goldfinger is very real world. You know, he doesn't have a stealth boat. He does, you know, he's got an airplane, but it's... Gotta love the stealth boat. Gotta love the stealth boat. <laughs> he's got an airplane, but it's just a regular plane you can buy, uh, or you could buy in 1963. Um, you could probably still buy one you if you had a lot of money and yeah. you're a collector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he decorated it very well, again, because he had Ken Adam on his side. But yeah, he, what he's doing isn't totally beyond imagination. It, it's crazy, but you can go like, oh, okay, well, I, I can at least see a straight line between points A, B, and C for him to pull off what he wants to pull off. It's interesting to me because, you know, when they were trying to cast this, this role, they actually wanted Orson Welles. Yes, yes. And can you imagine the masterful performance that Orson Welles would have given as Goldfinger. And unfortunately, his financial demands were, well, they were the gold standard, and they weren't <laughs> going to pay the gold standard, so they got a guy who can't even speak English to do the role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I kind of love that. But, I mean, Gert Frobe is so good. Um, oh, he's fantastic. They, yeah, you kind of can't picture anyone else. Uh, I heard that there was one line that he spoke that is actually his voice and that made it into the trailer. So I don't know if that line was dubbed over uh, completely for the final film, but yeah, it was uh, Michael Collins who did the, the, the actual voice acting in the movie. Orson Welles. I mean, I have mad love for Orson Welles, but man, what a tormented career full of ups and downs. It's really hard to picture that. And if you're watching this movie, as an audience, whether it was in 1964, 65, or now, would you be able to suspend disbelief enough that it's just Goldfinger versus Bond? Because now you kind of watch this movie and you see Sean Connery, rather than just thinking that this is James Bond. Would you be able to suspend belief and say, uh, this is the character Goldfinger, this isn't Charles Foster Kane, <laughs> you know? And that's an interesting thought process because I I don't know I don't know if then people would have had that but just think about this it, you were talking about his tortured career yeah don't you think that when he was alive he wished he had done this role think of the prestige it would have given him in Hollywood to be in this film it's one of those things where I'm sure an actor doesn't do a film and then it blows up and then they're like son of a you know like <laughs> that was my moment well I he certainly it. wasn't above it he came back and he did casino royale <laughs> for you know he did a fake bond movie when he could have been in a real bond movie but yeah plenty of opportunities like that just go up in smoke you know ronald reagan didn't play rick in uh, casablanca and um 
yeah, Will Smith didn't play Neo in the Matrix. So, yeah, plenty of missed opportunities like that. So, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe other than the money, I don't know if Orson Welles would have had any thoughts about uh, what at the time was just a massive hugely marketed blockbuster would he have thought that that was beneath him somehow but again i have to come back to the answer of thinking no because he did do casino royale maybe he was just desperate at that point maybe maybe what i love about the the way that goldfinger is played is that he is so nonchalant about everything he does you know he is so comfortable in the villain's skin he is completely amoral. And, and that's interesting to be getting in a villain at this point in time, I think. One that just has no compulsion about doing whatever he needs to do to further himself. You know, there's, there's nothing uh, about him that I uh, empathize with or anything like that. He is just a guy who's out to do what's best for him. And that's all that matters. It's funny because it doesn't make him all that different from a lot of people today. <laughs> uh, but, you know, here we call him the villain. And so I just, I think uh, such an interesting, way, to me, cultural stamp, you know, in this point. And I mean, we look back on him and we think, oh, he's just the crazy supervillain. But he isn't all that crazy. He's well thought out. He's reasoned. He's He's meticulously planned things. He has put together a network. I mean, this guy is is really smart. And what I love about him is that he does create a great intellectual foil for Bond as they're trying to figure one another out. He's completely headstrong in what he's doing. And, and I, I know what you're saying here. This is not a villain where we have to know anything about his childhood. <laughs> you right. know, right? none of that is on the table here. He just is who he is, and he is purely defined by his actions and his plans. And that's it. We don't have to know anything else. We don't have to have any sympathy for him either. Zero. You know, there, there's certainly something to be said for modern storytelling where you try to at least give the audience the opportunity to if not emotionally identify, at least have some recognition about the bad guy and what motivates them. What motivates Goldfinger? Gold. It's in his name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? He was born with the name. It just came with and him. And it just stuck. You know, if only his parents hadn't named him Auric. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there's something really strange, but sort of charming about that. Um, and I have to wonder again, if this is that shift in culture and what we see in movies you know this is a period when we've got sort of an acceleration of everything that is to come like like we said adult culture is going away youth culture is coming in comic books are very soon to you know outsell most of everything else and those characters sort of you know flashy big bold bigger than life are really going to be stuck in the popular culture. So this is sort of like a, a, a grasp at that where you don't necessarily need to have a complex villain. You just need to have a guy that you can believe is going to pull off a crime. And that sort of works for Goldfinger. And by the way, we'd be very remiss if we didn't mention one other villain in this movie who, who I think doesn't get enough recognition. 
and that is Napoleon Solo. Now, I know you're wondering, why am I mentioning Napoleon Solo? I am wondering that, John. Because Napoleon Solo is in this movie. Really? Did I miss him in the background? He's one of the gangsters. He's definitely not in the background. He's one of the gangsters when Goldfinger has called together all the gangsters from Chicago and New York and the West Coast and everywhere, and they've all gathered at his home in Kentucky. And the first line that you hear is about how that guy Solo is going to wear a hole in his shoes, walking back and forth. And then what happens to Solo, he decides to cash out, take his million dollars in gold, and where does that get him? It gets him crushed up into a teeny tiny little car. That is Napoleon Solo. And that, from the book, that's where Ian Fleming got the name to give to Sam Rolfe and Norman Felton to then make a TV series. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) That is him. That's funny because I remember that line. Yeah. Like of them, like, Solo's going to wear a hole in his shoe. (laughs) Right. Ah, that's so funny. That's wonderful. Um, Speaking of of things to which this film adds Mm -hmm. to the mythology of Bond, the gadgets. Oh, yeah. And, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Desmond Llewellyn's you know, fully being added as Q. And my favorite story of his was um, him talking about the fact that he was really excited to come and play this role. And his thought process was, well, I'll be like everybody else. I love James Bond. He's, we're going to be best buds. And they were like, no, we, we don't, we, we want you to be antagonistic towards Bond. (laughs) And he's like, why would I do that? And they're like, because, he doesn't respect you or your gadgets. And he's like, oh. And then, of course, you know, you get the great line in this movie, I never joke about my work, 007. <laughs> and it cements that relationship and, and that, that kind of begrudging, almost like brotherly love that they have towards one another. Right, <laughs> where right. They love each other, but they also hate each other. Right. Uh, and right. It's, it's, oh, so wonderful, so wonderful. It's a stroke of inspiration that uh, otherwise you would just have a very dry scene about saying, here's this thing, here's this thing, I hope you don't get in trouble or lose my gadgets. That would have been a very different scene, but you give it a little meat, and and especially with the idea and the implication that this character will be around more. This goes back to the whole thing that we were saying about how do you cement and how do you construct this world of James Bond for the audience to to match and exceed their expectations. We met Major Boothroyd. We met the outfitter for James Bond. But now we've got to take that a step further. And now we've got to expand Bond's world quite a bit. And we've got to give some life and some character. We've done that with Moneypenny, and we continue that in Goldfinger. But now we've really got to amp that up with Q. And by the way, going back to that uh, with Q, uh, because you mentioned early on that the DB5 plays such a central role in this movie and then will continue to play a central role in Bond movies to come. You know, they were working with a prototype of that car. Yes, which is incredible. Absolutely incredible, but it goes back to this thing of the filmmakers thinking, we have to make this cooler than cool. We can't just get a cool car. We've got to get the coolest car, and it's got to be one you can't even buy yet. You know, you will be able to buy it after the movie comes out, but we're going to make this movie with a prototype because that's the car that James Bond would have. 
So that's a very calculated thing again to say, okay, we're going to take reality one step better and we're going to be ahead of the curve on this. And on top of the fact that, I mean, you have the DB5, you also uh, have a great partnership with Ford in this film who gives you a beautiful Lincoln, a yeah. beautiful Thunderbird, a wonderful Mustang, yes. uh, a really cool old, like we call it now, but an old like Woody station wagon. I yeah. mean, you know, just giving you a lot of great cars because especially, you know, being in America. But yes, I mean, that DB5, it just is. I mean, there isn't a way to explain, I think, how any red-blooded man on any part of the planet <laughs> feels when they see that car, yeah. and many women do too, yeah. uh, because it, it is a, a quite beautiful vehicle. Uh, but we also have this nostalgic experience of every time we see it, thinking of the one character who is cool enough to drive that car. So if I could just drive that car, I would be just as cool as James Bond for about right. five minutes. Right. And that's that's the mystique of Bond and, and, and what everything that he then touches became. Omega watches, Rolex watches, Lotuses, mm -hmm. you know, Aston Martins, uh, you know, j you name it. If Bond's worn it or drunk it or, you know, slept with it <laughs> we want it all you right, know and right. so it's it, it it is an incredible thing and they really do they find something very special in that car and then they make it even more special with all the gadgets that they use on it yeah and so many of those elements are actually just practical elements that they had to create there's very little like super special effects because they don't have that ability yet Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but the fact that the oil slick coming out, that's just coming out of a canister in the back seat, yep. uh, right. you know, that kind of stuff, it's actually happening, but it's just, it makes it incredible. And they, they use the movie magic to the nth degree to make that car work. The production had to buy that car. They never had to buy another Aston Martin after the fact. No. In fact, Aston <laughs> Martin actually just nowadays makes them new cars. Yes. Like the DB, I think it was the 10 yeah. that they just used yeah. for uh, Spectre. Right. That was the car. They made it specifically for Bond, and then you could buy it afterwards for who knows how many thousands of millions of pounds, probably. Because it's the greatest commercial for a car you could possibly have. That That desire is linked once you see a Bond movie. There's just no question about it. Um, I like what you mentioned about the very practical effects. You can you can feel how all of this stuff works on Bond's car. Now, what I didn't understand is, first of all, I wondered if the oil slicks would work quite as well as they did. Second of on all, on a dirt road, on a dirt road, I thought that yeah. might be a little difficult. <laughs> but then, particularly that you had the bad guy's car literally explode as it's going over the cliff. I thought, man, that is a cheap car. <laughs> well, they weren't they weren't driving an Aston Martin. No, they, certainly they weren't were driving not. a Ford. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I thought the same thing. I was like, why is the car exploding? It, it hasn't really hit anything. It's just <laughs> it's making its way down the cliff, but it hasn't actually gotten to the bottom yet. And it's already exploding. That's yep. that's impressive. Bond yep. is is good. So he had no idea. Well, this is the point of the show where we get to the thing that everybody's been waiting for us to talk about, which is the Bond women. 
That's what I've been waiting for. We should just erase everything we've recorded. Yeah, up until I mean, now. Yeah. that was useless garbage. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, almost as disappointing as this brandy. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> uh, let's let's before we jump to the blonde women, let's talk about odd job because what a way to set the trope for the henchmen, but with odd. I just every time I watch the movie, it kind of brings a smile to my face mm. uh, with the over-the-top goofiness of this character. And yet, at the same time, the the way the actor who is a real wrestler kind of plays the role, he's mute, you know, and like he, he just, he has that hulking presence that does, uh, you know, James Bond doesn't stand a chance with this guy in an actual fight. There's no reasoning with odd job. Which is terrifying. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's also something about Ajab, about Harold Sakata, that you could picture that guy in real life walking down the street in a way that you could not picture maybe uh, a guy with giant metal braces walking down the street, or let's say a huge pale guy with diamonds embedded in his face walking down the street. There's something about Ajab that is very real feeling, but is also terrifying because you can't have a conversation with him. Um, you, you can't talk him out of killing you. There's that great scene at the end um, when he's in Fort Knox and uh, uh, Goldfinger's other henchman is, is saying to Oddjob, you can be a hero. What are you doing? <laughs> you can be a hero if you help me stop this. No, he's just going to throw you over the, uh, the atrium and you're going to land, fall to your death on a bunch of uh, metal grates underneath. And and he will gladly die yeah. for Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that there is any character quite like that before in cinema. I, I'm sure that there were some attempts at that. There are scary characters before, uh, certainly like in Nosferatu, you know, that will haunt your dreams. But um, Ajab is something a little different, just a little weird. And for him to be Goldfinger's lackey so that Goldfinger doesn't have to actually get his hands dirty. Um, and the fact that we see, when we see Oddjob decapitate a statue, now we know that that's foreshadowing. But at the time, right. if this is the first time you've ever seen this movie, you didn't know that that would happen to an actual person. And it could have been much more gruesome had they actually yes. gone with yes. the idea that his hat can decapitate a stone statue. So imagine what it could do to human flesh, you know? And, and he, he does that without remorse at all. I, I don't know. I mean, he must be being paid very well, given the best of, you know, Asian bathhouse or something. All I, the I don't, kimchi don't, he can eat. I guess. Yeah. I, I don't really know. Um, great sushi. Yeah. Uh, so what what's wonderful about him like you said is that he does have a realism to him i mean yes he throws a goofy hat and all it makes me think of is austin powers <laughs> who throws a shoe <laughs> honestly you know um so <laughs> perfect yeah. uh but you know he throws the hat it's a little bit goofy but the rest of him is just uh, you know a super strong guy who is a force to be reckoned with and i think you know as I'm thinking through like Bond henchmen, Red Grant, who we had in the last mm -hmm. movie, also feels like that. And mm -hmm. um, it's great. You know, as I'm as I'm looking through other films, the last one that I can really remember, kind of feeling like he's more normal, was was actually Inspector with Jinx. Oh you know, yeah, uh, he has those weird things on his thumb. 
Yeah. Uh, but that's not, I mean, you know, that's not the, you don't see that person walking down the street and think like, oh, well, that's weird because they have a metal grill. Right, uh, right. You know, so I, I, I think the henchmen to which can find a way to be unassuming in some areas, but frightening in others are the ones that are probably the most impactful. And that's probably what I think made Oddjob impactful because he is intimidating when you see him on the golf course. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, he just looks like a wrestler they've turned into a caddy. Yeah. And a butler. <laughs> right. You know, uh, right. so that's not scary until he starts to slowly throughout the film show you his moves and and and, and his will to do whatever it takes to make sure that his employer gets what he wants, which that's also kind of scary, that kind of fanatical devotion. And how about that golf scene, by the way? Because we're kind of remiss if we don't mention that that's one of the most interesting scenes in the movie that you would never think would be as fascinating as it is to watch a couple of people walk around playing golf. If I see golf come on TV, I'm immediately turning the channel in about 0.2 seconds. I won't tell my wife you said okay. that. <laughs> she don't. loves golf. <laughs> Please don't. But this is just absolutely gripping because so much is revealed about the characters during that scene of just a couple of guys talking and trying to outsmart each other on a golf course. Scenery is beautiful, but it's all about what the characters are doing. By the way, I did a little bit of math. That gold bar that Bond is using to try to tempt Goldfinger, uh, that thing would have made weighed more than 25 pounds, oh, making gosh. it very heavy, yes. Um, and in the summer of 1963, going into 1964, British pound cost about $2.80. That, that is a horrible exchange rate. Today, it's about $1.30 to the British pound. So that 5,000-pound golf game is equivalent to over $100,000 today. Even if we went with a less favorable exchange rate and we said it was today's $1.30 a pound, it would still mean over $50,000 is what Bond took home. So it was a good day for Bond. I, I mean, does he get to keep that money? I mean, he's... You know, well, he was I on the clock. Why. But he did it yeah. himself. So yeah. it's a good question, you know. I, I love that you mentioned the golf game because I also love the relationship that Bond has with his caddy. Mm-hmm. And it's just a fun, funny thing as that caddy probably has the best day he's had in years <laughs> right. with somebody. Right. Uh, and the way that they play Goldfinger is really perfect there. And then, of course, it leads to, you know, coming back to, to Odd Job crushing the uh, golf ball in his hand, which. You know, that's 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 where you're like, oh, this guy is terrifying. Yeah, right. Right. It's <laughs> not an easy thing to do. No, not at all. But this does lead us to the Bond women of this Oh, film. thank goodness. And I, I, I think that they chose wisely. Mm-hmm. One, Shirley Eaton as Jill Masterson is a vision in in the film here here uh as bond comes upon her and she's watching uh the game and giving goldfinger the information and of course her line who are you (laughs) the name's bond james bond is one of the most replayed clips in i think bond history just because it's it's so famous yeah and um I love the way in which they have this interesting relationship together and 
What makes the thing with him and her so interesting is that I feel like Bond thinks he's going to be able to keep her safe mm. mm-hmm. because she's with him. And what could happen if she's with me? Right. And he doesn't take into account just how devious yet Goldfinger is. And this is where he learns. And so it doesn't make Jill just a pawn who moves the character forward, I think, so much as more of a mistake that Bond makes. Yeah. In in not being even more careful than he is by staying in the same hotel with this woman, um, you know, not going somewhere else, any of those kind of things. Bond screws up. Yeah. And he pays for it and she pays for it. You know, if if Goldfinger hadn't wanted Bond alive, he'd be dead too. Yep. I think it makes for a really interesting scene and Fortunately, Jill Masterson doesn't get a lot of time on screen, but obviously it's very impactful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's great. I, I think Shirley Eden's just absolutely gorgeous. But you're making a very good case here for what I think would otherwise get turned around to say, well, she's just the sacrificial lamb. Well, she does die. She dies early on. But there is something like you said there about the impact that this has. This is a mistake. She's not just sort of being offered up by Bond so he can protect himself. This is something that otherwise could have gone very differently. I think that in in a different timeline, she would have been whisked away by Felix to be protected while Bond does his thing to settle up with Goldfinger. But she's great, and she's totally memorable. Um, also, by the way, uh, we have to mention that skin suffocation is not a thing. <laughs> no, it's it not. not. <laughs> and we also have to mention that at the scenes at the Fontainebleau Hotel, which were not shot at the Fontainebleau Hotel, at least uh, not with Sean Connery, he never left uh, uh, Europe to do this movie, so he was not in Miami. But um, Dink, uh, Margaret Nolan. So she just has a couple of shots, and she's memorable because it's probably the most sexist thing in the movie. You know, say goodbye, Dink, and he slaps her on the butt as she walks away and you go, okay, come on, you don't do that. But the thing about Margaret Nolan, also very beautiful in her own right, she is the model in the opening credits. Yes, she is. So Mm -hmm. she is, again, somebody who just indelibly is part of the overall look of the movie. And by the way, just recently, I saw that there were behind the scenes pictures released of her on set during the shooting of those opening credits. So you see like the, the oh, studio wow. and they've got projectors going to project the images from the movie on her. It's very, very cool. I have to say that was uh, an incredible visual and the way that they mm-hmm. did it was was so wonderful. I mean, the scene in the, the opening where he hits the golf shot and it slides down mm-hmm. into between her yep. cleavage is like <laughs> just just the thought process of getting that shot yep. right so that it actually does what you want yep. it to do that's a lot of uh, just a really cool thing and it, it, yes it's it's very sexy and and all of that but it's supposed to be it's, it's a James Bond mm-hmm. film so uh yeah you're right he him slapping her on the butt probably not something you want to do yeah, these days boys yeah, please don't <laughs> so uh unless you want to get slapped in the right. face I, I like the fact that again i think i read it is that bond makes a mistake because i don't get that feeling in this film 
that he is in any way worried about her or where they are. Or I mean, he is very mm-hmm. comfortable. He is just going to get another bottle of champagne because the other one is above 32 <laughs> degrees. And God forbid, uh, 53 is above 32 degrees. Right. I mean, that's just not done, <laughs> my lady. And, and, and he's, uh, that's kind of a... He's taking care of her too. He's treating her really well. He's giving her the best that he has to offer that money mm-hmm. can buy, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's just an, it makes for a much interesting scene than it could have been. And so you don't feel like she is the character that's just kind of being fridged, right? right. A, yep. At all uh, in this movie. And you know, I, I, what's most interesting to me is you know, Honor Blackman is Pussy Galore, who, as they were, you know doing the marketing for the movie, she was either called Kitty <laughs> or Miss Galore. She was never called Pussy, uh, which for a good reason. But what I love is the way in which she, as a person, even as she got older, completely embraced the role and the name. You know, because when you see her in the extras, um, she is much older. And and she's saying things like, well, I mean, it's really just, it's just a bit of fun. It's a, it's tongue in cheek, you know, like she t- takes it for the kind of laugh that it's supposed to be. And I just, I think that's a really interesting thing for an actress to be able to say and understand, like, it's not meant to be serious. I, I think, you know, the worst things you can say about the character of Pussy Galore is that today, and again, it, we're looking at this with the benefit of hindsight of more than 50 years and that's that today it it really feels like a terrible kind of cop out to introduce a character who is introduced as a lesbian you know we we have to know that about she how she's written um and then she just sort of she's immune me, yeah she's immune she's immune to bond yeah but then magically turns because of well because of james bond's sexual prowess so there's something that rings very false about that. His, his gold yeah, right. member. <laughs> it's very false about that and very, um, you know, male fantasy fulfillment. I think that's the worst thing that you can say about that character and about the way her character plays out in the movie. But the best things you can say about her are many. She is a fabulous presence on screen. And Honor Blackman, just in contrast to Margaret Nolan and Shirley Eaton, and I'm blanking on the actress who plays uh, Tilly Masterson, but they're all, you know, in their early 20s. Honor Blackman, when they were making this movie, it was nearly 40. She was, I believe she was like 38, 39 when this was being made. That She was older than Sean Connery at the time. And she has a different feel because she's got some maturity, she's got some gravitas, and she's got some toughness. I kind of cringe when every few years the uh, the press junkets start for the Bond movies and every actress who is, quote unquote, the Bond girl says something like, well, I'm the first Bond girl who's really tough and who's really Bond's equal. Yeah. And I just think, <laughs> no, you're not, because that character has been there, it maybe played out a different way. But Pussy Galore is tough. She is Bond's equal. She carries a gun half the movie pointed at him, <laughs> you know. She knows judo. She knows judo, exactly. Um, so I, I think that scene, you know, that scene of them in the uh, the horse stable where essentially the whole plot then changes because she was introduced to 
the magic bond that you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. It's a different time, a different kind of storytelling. Um, maybe you would do something differently today. But regardless, I don't want that to take away from how good this character is and just how good Honor Blackman is. You can't take your eyes off her when she's on screen. And it's not just because she's beautiful. It's also because she's tough and she owns the scenes that she's in. I think one of the things that you said really helps is that she does have that gravitas. And I think it's because of her age Mm -hmm. and because she feels like an equal because of that age to Bond. This woman has been around, you know, she's not some young thing that Bond can just win over by a bonding. Mm -hmm. And at least we think, uh, and, but I, I think also it leads me to think and to add something to the film, maybe in my mind that the scene in the hay has to have more in it than just sex. Mm -hmm. It has to have some kind of conversation Yeah. To between them for her to make the turn because it, they start off the conversation there and he is asking her, you're not, you don't really want to go along with this craziness, do you? You know, you, you don't really want to do this. I mean, he's, he's feeling her out in that way. And then, of course, the sexual tension takes over because we kind of all want to see Bond sleep with Honor yep. Blackman, yep. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, that's becomes part of the Bond formula. But, it also becomes part of the Bond formula, I guess, in some ways that sometimes he can reach the female and sometimes he can't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and you never know which one that's going to be. But I love that they chose her because, uh, you know, she had been on the Avengers, the British TV right. show. Uh, that's where she learned all the judo that she knows uh, and she uses in the film. And I think that she brought all of that swagger to the role that she had learned from the Avengers and it's it's just blatantly out there on screen and so it's not only that she's beautiful and sexy but she just has gumption yeah yeah she she exudes a kind of strength you know yes and i think that's what makes her whether what we can quibble about today which we would do differently it's still there's a strength to her to which makes her a good bond woman in that way not perfect, mm-hmm. uh, and and this does kind of start the trend that we will see in subsequent Bond films, where the women maybe have less of a role other than to just be there for Bond, to waste some time maybe, but it isn't quite here just yet, uh, which is wonderful. And uh, luckily, you'll get wonderful roles down the line, you know, for fantastic Bond women like. Diana Rigg and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, I think of um, the strength of the character in uh, For Your Eyes Only, mm-hmm. and even though she's too young for that podcast. <laughs> uh, and, you know, things like that. I, I or Even I think of Madeline Swan. Oh, sure. In, uh, Spectre. Sure. So, I, like you said, you know, you cringe when they say, oh, this is going to be the best Bond woman ever. <laughs> I'm going to be the strongest, you know. There is a history of strength that has been there the whole time. And we talked about that in the first two films. I think it's still here for the most part. There, are, It's not quite as strong as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I think that if there had been uh, maybe an insert shot of maybe afterwards, mm. 
yeah. a bond having conversation. But at the same time, the whole point of it is we don't know that she's turned. Right. So that you're watching the end and what plays out is you realize, oh, Bond was able to, you know, right. get Miss Galore to change her mind. <laughs> Infer from that what you will. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I, talking about all this, John, and, and just the phenomenon, it really leads to me to, I think, one of the most important questions mm-hmm. that we're going to get to mm-hmm. tonight. Uh, and it's the last question. And that is, how do you rate Goldfinger as a movie? And, and I think we've been doing a, a fair job of just kind of taking them as they come. This one is a bit different, as we've talked about extensively. It's a it's a whole different ball of wax. It changes the entire landscape. Yeah. Uh, I I found it much easier to talk about the other two and just talk about them as a movie and and how I felt about them and and give them a rating. This one it has a reputation to live up to. So, I guess for myself, I'm going to try and strip that out and just say, do I like this movie and what I what I rate yeah. it. So, um, for you. What do you think? Well, I think you hit on the difficulty right away, which is that it's kind of impossible to remove this movie from the context of every other Bond movie and treat it as sort of the the first best prototype of all the other Bond movies. You know, it's a sort of ramping up from Dr. No to From Russia With Love to Goldfinger, but Goldfinger is a sort of off the charts And then everything after it gets compared back to that movie, for better or for worse, for the things in it that work and for the things in it that don't necessarily work. So our difficulty today, and I think the only way I can approach it, is to sort of treat this a way that Roger Ebert treated movies. He always said that you know when he gave a star rating to a movie, that he wasn't comparing it to another movie. Because if he did that, how would any movie get the same rating as Citizen Kane. You know, if Citizen Kane is five stars, how can any other movie get five stars, right? Right. I mean, for me, yeah, Casablanca, it's five stars. Can any other movie be Casablanca? Right, (laughs) exactly. So the only real criteria you can use is to say, how does this movie live up to what the movie sets out to do? And I think the movie sets out to do a couple of things. It sets out to, first of all, entertain us. But but second of all, it sets out to establish Bond and establish Bond differently than they did in Dr. No and From Russia With Love to actually cement him as a pop culture character and the James Bond movies as a pop culture event in a way that the previous two movies did not. So now we've got the template really firmly solidified and expectation now is going to always revert back to this one. Um, As a piece of movie making, I think that Goldfinger is really tight. It's scripted well. The character moments are good, if not deep, but they don't necessarily have to be deep. (laughs) That's okay. It works for this. So if I judge Goldfinger against itself, which is all I can really do here, I have to come back and say that they accomplished everything they set out to do with this movie from an artistic standpoint and from a marketing 
and and financial success standpoint, even though that shouldn't necessarily have any weight on the, the artistry of the movie. But I think those things are so greatly tied together with the Bond movies that, that you kind of have to look at it that way as well. So I'm going to give it five, DB five. <laughs> That'll be my rating. They get five Aston Martin DB fives from me, which is probably worth about, I don't know, uh, easily five million bucks to somewhere probably between three and five. Retire yeah, on. yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now that John's got his retirement yep. uh, planned. Yeah. It is it is hard for me because I've had a I've had that thing that that happens you know when something's so popular you almost want to rebel against mm -hmm. it but watching Goldfinger again with I think a fresh set of eyes in the sense of just going in and trying to let the movie say what it wanted to say to me and be what it was to me I think you're exactly right this movie does everything that it wants to do and it does it well it does it with style it does it with Bond class you know, this is a first-class Bond movie, and that's not a knock. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, well, it's just a first-class Bond movie. I think this is actually just a first-class film. Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny. It's witty. It's got action. It's got suspense. It's got, you know, sexiness, you know. It's intrigue. All the things that we love about fun spy movies, this is the quintessential spy film and i really enjoy it it is not my favorite bond film but that does not negate the fact that this is a a wonderful piece of entertainment and one of the best bond films ever and i believe if i'm remembering my list on letterboxd correctly i think that this is in the top five for me which makes sense I, I'm with you. I, I feel compelled to say this is five out of five mint juleps. <laughs> nice. Uh, and uh, Dr. McCoy would be proud. He would. So. He would. Although they're properly in Kentucky in this movie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they yeah. got it right. So right. I I just, I really am so glad that we're, we're doing this because I'm having such a great time taking the movies as they come and seeing how the Bond phenomenon will impact now as we move into Thunderball. You only live twice in for, uh, on Your Majesty's Secret Service, which we'll get to, and that'll be the last Bond film that we'll do this year. So we've got three more Bond films for you coming up on the 602 Club. And John, I, I'm so glad that we get to do this. We have some incredible support here on the network through Patreon. Uh, we've got some wonderful associate producers. We've got Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. We have Norman Lau, who's actually an associate producer on every show in the network because of his support. Uh, there's just no way that we can make this uh, possible without the support of listeners just like these gentlemen and just like you. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of the team today and help make sure all of the content that we put out across Trek FM, that's 20 different shows, special feeds, so much coming at you. We just need your help to make sure that it keeps coming at you each and every week. So go to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can become part of our team. Now, John, uh, it's been a fantastic experience so far. We have finished Goldfinger and we'll have Thunderball, we will return for Thunderball 
in uh, I think four weeks time or since uh, I can't Great. remember the schedule. But thanks so much for doing this again. It's it's been such a joy. But uh, I know you have some places that you are online. So let everybody know um, if this is the first time they're listening to the 602 Club, how can they get in touch with uh, John Champion? And what is John Champion doing online that they need to be listening to? Well, when I'm not talking about James Bond effusively, (laughs) then uh, (laughs) you can find me talking a lot more about Star Trek. Um, Sort of the, the day job podcast, as it were is uh, Mission Log. So Mission Log is a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. You can find us at missionlogpodcast.com. That's sort of the the central place to get all your Mission Log info. From there, you'll be directed to our Twitter and Facebook accounts, which are Mission Log Pod. Um, So if you like Star Trek, and I'd imagine if you're listening to Trek FM, you might know a thing or two about Star Trek in addition to James Bond, then uh, please come find us there. We're on a 14-year mission to analyze, review, discuss, pick apart every single episode of Star Trek ever. Um, And my personal Twitter account is at DVDGeeks. I chime in every now and then, not all the time, but every now and then if I need to slip in a witty bon mot, I'll do it there. Well, that's usually where you give your brandy reviews. So yeah, exactly, um... exactly. If I need to talk about brandy (laughs) or or some of the lesser cognac, then, uh, then I will do it there. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm here on the network on a few shows. I'm doing literary treks with Bruce and Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Also, wonderful things we have the opportunity to do is interview the authors about a lot of their latest work. So make sure you check that out. Of course, with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine on our show called The Orb. Wonderful opportunity to uh, dive into... Just the greatness of Deep Space Nine. So check us out there. And I'm on a podcast called Aggressive Negotiations with my good friend John Mills over there on the Nerd Party Network. You can find us on iTunes or on the nerdparty.com. So I really appreciate that. It's fun. We talk about Star Wars, uh, pick a kind of a strange, esoteric, new, geeky topic in Star Wars and talk about that each week. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. Man, I, I, I have to tell you, this is so cool. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you want to be here, John, because I, I think the listeners have loved it. I know I've loved it. And I've only got one thing left to say. Y'all come back now, you hear? Cold finger. <laughs> <laughs>